Well, I have a friend, a pastor at a different church, who told me a very striking story about a lady in his congregation. He'd had the privilege of working and ministering to this woman, whom I'll call Anne, as she was in the process of becoming a Christian. Now, Anne was an upstanding woman, an exemplary wife and mom. She'd been in church her whole life. People thought well of her. But although most people would not have known this, she was suffering greatly. Anne was a very unhappy woman. And she had turned to my friend, her pastor, for counseling. He and his wife were meeting with her and ministering to her, and the pastor took note of one very significant thing. During their discussions, Anne would not look him in the eye. In fact, she could barely raise her eyes from the floor. She just kept looking down throughout the whole engagement. And my friend began to discover that this dear lady was absolutely racked with guilt. She lived with a crushing sense of shame and insecurity. But something wonderful was about to happen. Because over time, the Lord began to do a glorious work in Anne's life. She began to truly understand the gospel and the grace of God that's available in Jesus Christ, and she came to true saving faith. And there came a night when the pastor and his wife were driving home after a counseling session with Anne, and they were just marveling over the changes that were becoming evident in her life. And with joy, they said to one another, Did you see? She was looking right at us the whole time. She was looking us in the eye. See, Anne's guilt was gone. And she didn't have to hide anymore. Anne's former inability to look you in the face was directly connected to her sense of guilt and shame. Her downward gaze was her way of hiding so that she wouldn't feel the sharp pain of exposure. And Anne is not alone in this. I think everyone in the room can relate at some level. It is natural that when we have done wrong and we feel guilty, we want to hide. We want to cover up. What was Adam and Eve's reaction when they recognized that they had sinned in the garden? Suddenly, it hit them. They realized they were naked. They had been naked all the time, but that had not been a source of shame. Now they realize that they're naked, and they are ashamed. So what do they do? They try to avoid exposure. They cover their bodies with fig leaves, thinking that that will hide them from the presence of the Lord. But they discovered that no attempt could hide them from his gaze. Now today, we live in a world that is intent on downplaying sin, denying the reality of sin, even snickering about sin. And yet, the reality is, our consciences still persistently whisper in our ears, guilty, guilty. Guilty. And in this, our consciences agree with God himself. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, please. 
If you're using a blue Bible from the seats in front of you, you can find that at the very bottom of page 940. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law shall no human being be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Friends, I don't know what your perception of your moral condition was when you walked in this morning, but God's word is absolutely clear, absolutely unmistakably clear. Every single one of us has a problem. We are guilty. We're guilty sinners before a holy God. Sin is universal, affecting every single person in this room, every single person in this world. And sin is wicked, and it is ugly. So if you'd like to deny that you're a sinner, or at least argue that you're not all that bad, you're a pretty good person, Vermont likes to use, I'm all set. If that's how you see yourself this morning, then this scripture explicitly says it's intended to shut your mouth. Because God intends that every mouth be closed before him, and the whole world be accountable to him, and that we recognize it. No one is righteous. No one does good. You are not the exception to that. Hear me. You are not the exception to that. And deep down, we know it to be true. Because every one of us has things in our past that we, we sure wish weren't there. Things that we look back on in our secret hearts with deep shame that we'd really like to forget. And this shame is why we tend to hide who we are. It's why we go about pretending to other people. It's why we try to keep even our own selves distracted so that we don't have to think about the fact that we're ashamed. That's the reality. You and I are guilty. And no matter how much we try to hide and to cover ourselves up, we cannot escape the gaze of Almighty God. As the author of Hebrews says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We must all 
give an account of ourselves to God. He who cannot be deceived and from whom we cannot hide. His law bears witness against us and condemns us as sinners. We have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have a natural tendency to sin against God and our neighbor, as the catechism said. And our guilty condition means that we are justly deserving of punishment. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. And Romans 1 would tell us we know we deserve it. This situation seems really pretty hopeless. As we come before the bar of God's righteous judgment, every one of us, by nature, can anticipate being declared guilty and receiving the sentence of eternal death. That is what the fall plunged us all into. And as Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Boy, we have a problem. What do we need if we are to escape being righteously condemned for our sin? Well, we've got all this guilt. We need to have all that guilt wiped out. We need our sin to be covered. We need somehow to have our iniquity removed. The Bible has a word for that. It's called atonement. Sin can only be dealt with through atonement. Now, what is atonement? Well, we use this word in our culture still. When a wrong has been committed, there's a need to make some kind of restitution for that wrong, some kind of payment in hope of reconciling the person we've wronged. One somewhat trivial example, it's why a man buys flowers for his wife once he realizes he's been a bit of a jerk. He's seeking to atone for being a jerk because he wants to be reconciled to his wife, thus the flowers. Now, I want us to look at the Bible's understanding of atonement. Several ideas are in play. We've already seen that our problem, our major problem, is we're guilty before God of sin and under a sentence of death. Now, atonement solves that problem. It solves that problem because it involves the removal of the guilt of sin. Let's say I'm the one that's being atoned for. Atonement removes my guilt... And once my guilt is gone, a holy God can now justly turn away his anger from me, turn his face of mercy toward me, and we can be reconciled. God can now look upon me with favor and approval because my guilt no longer rests on me. That's what atonement is designed to do. That's great, you say. But how is the guilt removed? Well... Atonement requires the payment of a ransom price to make restitution to God for the sins that I've committed. And once the price has been paid, once justice is served on those sins, then God can righteously declare that the demands of his justice have been satisfied, that my sins have been justly dealt with and put away, and therefore I though a sinner, can be declared not guilty. That's complicated. But the essence is, my guilt is taken away. God now can righteously declare me not guilty, and we can be reconciled. 
Now, what if you were to say to me, okay, but why can't God just overlook sin? Or why can't he forgive it without the payment of a penalty? Well, that's, that's not difficult. It's the same reason a human judge cannot look at a convicted criminal who's just been convicted and say, you know what, I know that it's been proved beyond a reasonable doubt that you're guilty of murder. But I've decided that you are forgiven, and I order you to be released without any penalty. What's our natural reaction to that? We instinctively understand that wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be just. And God is both right and just. Our, friend, our sins, friends, which are against God, are heinous and wicked as any murder. So he cannot justly let them go unpunished. He is the righteous judge of all the earth. His justice, his holiness, requires that there be restitution for sin. A payment must be made. So what is necessary for atonement for sin to take place? Well, it requires a death. It requires the shedding of blood, the ending of a life. The wages of sin is death. And I have been hard at work earning those wages. That means my life is forfeit in God's sight. A death sentence must be carried out. Hebrews 9, 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The death penalty must be carried out. Without the shedding of blood, no forgiveness of sins. So a death must take place as the price for my sin. But here's the fantastic news. It doesn't have to be my death. If a suitable substitute can be found who will die in my place, the blood of that substitute can atone for my sin. This was the premise of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Turn, please, to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, which is the third book in the Bible. We're going to look at Leviticus chapter 1. I did not look up this one in the Blue Bible. You have to find it yourself. Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 5. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offspring... If, sorry, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is the entrance of the tent of meeting. So what happens? I, the sinner, I lay my head, my hands upon the head of that sacrifice. And that's demonstrating that I identify with this animal. It is standing in for me. It is representing me and dying in my place. My sins are, as it were, transferred over 
to it. And then that animal is killed, and the shedding of its blood makes atonement for me. It is acceptable for, to God. And because that ransom price is paid, and my guilt is removed, I can then be accepted before the Lord. Notice how the sacrifice has to be unblemished. The bull has to be a male without defect. God refuses to sacrifice, God refuses to accept a sacrifice that has any flaw. The substitute that dies in my place must be perfect if it's to atone for my imperfections. The pure dies for the impure. But then atonement also requires that the blood has to be presented before the Lord. The atoning payment has to be presented. That means there has to be a priest who is qualified to present the blood on my behalf. I, As an ordinary sinner, I don't have any right to approach my holy God. One instance in his, instant in his presence, and I would be destroyed. So I need a mediator. I need someone else whom God has authorized to go between me and God, who can take the blood of the sacrifice and present it before the Lord for my atonement. I can't present the blood myself. So what do I need? What do I need? I need a priest I need a priest who will stand between me and God to stand before the Lord on my behalf to offer up the blood that will cleanse me from my sin and take my guilt away. And now I want to show you the wonderful result. Atonement secures God's forgiveness. It secures God's forgiveness because sin is both paid for and it's put away. You might have heard of the celebration of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering. Now, the elaborate ceremonies that God ordained for the Jewish people for this special day are described in Leviticus chapter 16. We won't turn there. I'm just going to summarize. This is what happens yearly on the Day of Atonement. It's the one day out of the year where a human being, Israel's high priest, could enter into the tabernacle right into the innermost part, the Holy of Holies. One day out of the year he can enter. This is where God chose to reveal his glorious presence above the Ark of the Covenant, which had a covering, a lid of pure gold called the mercy seat. It was the lid of the box, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And God instituted the Day of Atonement to deal comprehensively with all the sin of his people once a year so that he, the Holy One, could continue to dwell in the midst of a sinful people without consuming them. Here's how it would go. So first the high priest would prepare himself. He'd bathe. He'd put on special linen garments from head to toe. Then he'd take a bull and two goats. First, he's got to deal with his own sin. So he offers the bull as an atoning sacrifice for his own sin. He takes the blood of the bull and brings it right into the presence of God, right into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. And that makes atonement for his own sin. First, he's got to deal with his own sin. Then he'd come out again. His own sins are now dealt with. Now the people's sins have to be dealt with. So he takes one of the two goats and he offers it to the Lord for the people's sin. 
Then he goes back into the Holy of Holies and presents the blood of that goat to the Lord. Again, he sprinkles the blood of the goat on the mercy seat. That makes atonement for the people. I'm going to read verses 20 through 22, because then there's part B. When he, when the high priest, has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. That goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This, we call this the scapegoat, which is a word that's come into English. When the high priest lays his hand on that goat's head and confesses the iniquities of Israel, he is, again, symbolically transferring all that enormous mass of sin onto the head of that goat. And then what do they do? Now contaminated by the people's sin, They send that goat out from the congregation, out into the wilderness. The goat bears all the sin of the people and carries it far, 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 far away. Never to return. And this ceremony of the two goats shows God's two ways that he's dealing with his people's sin. Number one, he's accepting the blood of a sacrifice the death of the first goat as a substitute, as a payment for sin so that the people will not die. And then God provides a second goat as the sin bearer who removes the people's transgressions far from him. And it's the work of the priest to ensure by this that sins are paid for and borne away. It's a picture of atonement. But... There's just a huge, massive problem. Because built into this system is planned obsolescence. The scripture says that all of this, all this ceremony, was only a picture of atonement. It wasn't actually the real thing. Now, I don't think this is hard to understand. Why isn't this going to get the job done? Well, it's because an animal, some dumb goat cannot be really a suitable substitute for a a human being. Right? A goat is a totally insufficient sacrifice. Turn, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We'll be in Hebrews for the most of the rest of our time. Chapter 10 is on page 1006. We'll read starting at verse 1. Why can't the goat get the job done? Verse 1 of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. 
for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. In other words, these animal sacrifices do not cut it, and they never were intended to. The reason we know they won't cut it is because they had to, they had to happen again and again and again. They had to be repeated year in, year out, because they couldn't actually get the job done. Now, during the Old Testament, God graciously accepted them as placeholders. As placeholders. But ultimately, man's sin must be atoned for by a man. Human nature's sin, as we read, human nature's sin must be satisfied by a human. Sin can't be truly atoned for. Forgiveness can't really be secured by anything less than a human paying the price of atonement. So that's that's the situation, friends. You and I... Sinners subject to eternal death, our only hope is that God will provide something that will really atone for our sin. We desperately need atonement, and that means two things. We need a qualified priest, and we need a suitable, acceptable sacrifice. This, this is exactly what God gave us at Christmas. He provided for us exactly what we needed, and he gave us it in Jesus. Because as it turns out, Jesus is both the great high priest and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the sinless Son of God. Unlike all the high priests under the Old Covenant, Jesus didn't have any sins of his own that needed to be atoned for. He was the unblemished one. Hebrews 7 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people? Because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. I hope you see this. None of the former priests were really qualified to be the mediators between God and man because they needed mediation themselves. They were sinners themselves. But then God sends Jesus. Can he stand as the mediating priest? Of course he can. He's the God-man. Both God and man. Very God of very gods. And yet truly human. He's literally the intersection point between humanity and God. Kids, what do we say in our song at Awana? He's totally God and totally man. The intersection between humanity and God. He can represent us to God. He can represent God to us. And so he's qualified to make the sacrifice of atonement that can truly cleanse our souls. Now look back, maybe not even... A page. Look back to Hebrews 9. The author is going to start that chapter by explaining how the old covenant sacrifices, the old day of atonement, didn't really do anything. God didn't really intend for them to do anything. He was just giving Israel glimpses of atonement until the real atonement should come. Now look at verse 11. Some of this language is a little complex. Listen for the main points. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, 
than through the greater and more perfect tent, that's heaven, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jump down to verse 24. For for Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What does this mean? It's telling us that the Day of Atonement was just one great big billboard saying, Jesus is coming! It was teaching us what salvation in Jesus would be like when he finally appeared. Friends, Jesus fulfills everything about the Day of Atonement. Think of those two goats again, right? He's the fulfillment of the first goat. He dies in the place of the people. His blood is shed on their behalf. Man had sinned, and a man had to die. And Jesus is the suitable substitute. He is the God-man, the spotless lamb, without defect. His precious blood was shed upon the altar of the cross. And it's a sufficient payment for our wretched sin so that we might be redeemed, we might be ransomed. And God looked upon the sacrifice of his dear son and said, yes, that's acceptable to me. That I will accept as the atonement for their sin. But Jesus fulfills the second goat too. When I put my faith in Jesus, I, if you will, lay my hands upon his precious head and I confess my sin over him And God transfers my sin with all its guilt onto the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has borne my iniquity far, far away. As far as the east is from the west, so far has Jesus removed my transgressions from me. Because he went outside the camp and bore my sin away to Calvary, out into the bleak wilderness and the wasteland of God's righteous wrath, he took my sin away. It's never coming back. And Jesus is not just the sacrifice. He's the high priest also. After his atoning death comes his glorious resurrection. After three days in the tomb, he rises. After he rises, he ascends to the Father. And then he goes into the true Holy of Holies, into heaven itself, into the very presence of God, and he presents his blood to his Father and says, I did it. Father, I've accomplished the work that you sent me to do. So please, all my people, all these sinners that you've given to me, remember, you spent your wrath on me. 
I've washed away their guilt in my blood. You can justly pardon them. You can receive them into your favor as your dear children. And even today, right now, Jesus, our great high priest, 24, 7, 365, remains before the Father interceding for his people. Because as believers, we still sin every single day. And what does Jesus do? He keeps on presenting his blood. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. My blood atoned for those sins. Keep them in your favor. And the father responds, of course I will, my son. For your sake, I remember their sins against them no more. I keep them in my grace. I keep them in my love. And friends, this is what God provided for us at Christmas when he sent Jesus into the world to be our priest and our sacrifice and our sin bearer. Now, how should you respond to this greatest of gifts? By receiving Jesus' atoning work for yourself. Not just for sinners, but receiving it for yourself. Make it personal, because it is personal. If you're not yet a believer... You've got to start by recognizing that you're still in your sins, which means you're still bearing your own guilt. Jesus himself says, unless you believe that I am, meaning believe that I'm the divine Messiah, that I'm the only Savior, and take me to yourself, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You cannot hope to deal with your sin on your own if you try to deny your guilt or if you attempt to atone for yourself by doing enough good deeds to balance out the scale, which is impossible. Then on the great day of God's judgment, you will stand before him alone, unprotected, no one to intercede for you, You will stand before him and you will be found guilty. You will be shown to be naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom you must give an account. And then you will be put to everlasting shame. You think of the shame that you felt in this world. Maybe rightly so. Nothing. Nothing compared to the burning shame that you'll know on that day. You'll spend eternity paying for your own sins in hell, racked with unabating guilt. And you'll remember how God offered Jesus to you to be the atoning sacrifice for your sin, but you refused to have him. You refused to have him. It will be too late. But right now, it is not too late. Right now, the offer of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is available. And Jesus is willing for you to lay your stained hands onto his blameless head and confess your sins over him and ask him to bear them for you. He still has his blood available to sinners like you if you will put your faith in him 
and believe that his salvation is for you, he will take your guilt and he will wash you clean. He will give you his perfect righteousness in place of your sin. He will intercede for you before his father and say, yes, father, accept this one also. I got another one. I shed my blood for this one. I paid the ransom price for this one. Don't wait. Don't wait any longer. This is the only solution God is offering. You must embrace the gift of his precious son. I tell you, are you weighed down with guilt and shame today? Are you so full of insecurities because you know yourself to not be what you ought? If you're weighed down with guilt and shame, you too can know freedom. You too can know what it means for God to love you, to accept you, to approve of you. And you can rejoice in the glorious words, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So come to Jesus. Come today. Believe in Him. Confess your sins. Put them onto Jesus Christ and let Him take them far, far, far away from you. Now, if you're a believer, and if you've already trusted Christ and received atonement and forgiveness for your sins, what should be your response? Essentially the same looks a little different, I would call you also to receive Jesus' atoning work. Take full ownership of the wonderful benefits that come from Jesus' atonement. By this, I'm going to talk about three things. First, child of God, do you really believe God loves you? Do you really believe that he likes you? Or do you think that he's merely tolerating you? usually kind of annoyed because you keep messing up. You keep falling into sin. That is a lie. Not that you keep falling into sin or keep messing up, but that that makes him annoyed at you. God the Father is not annoyed by your failures and weaknesses and sins of any one of his children who has been bought by Jesus' blood. He loves you. He likes you. He's fond of you because you're in his son. And he delights in you as he delights in Jesus. Your sins are gone. They're gone. Do you need to keep turning from them? Of course you do. He's going to make that happen too. They're gone. You can't screw that up. You can't make him stop loving you. You can't make him stop liking you. And this leads to a second way to make full use of Jesus' atonement. It's really true. You can live without the crushing weight of guilt and shame. You can live with a quiet conscience. If Jesus has taken away your sin and given you his righteousness, then you can boldly and humbly claim God's forgiveness when you do sin. And you can repent of it, and then you can let it go. This is the difference between biblical repentance and penance. See, penance penance says, you've sinned, 
Now you need to do something to atone for this. You need to feel badly enough for long enough and put yourself in a, in a timeout and don't go to God for comfort. Don't go to God for forgiveness. You can't approach him yet. You've got to make it up to him somehow. Go live extra holy for the next few days and then we'll see. No. No, that's actually wicked thinking. It's wicked thinking, not just bad thinking, wicked thinking. It's saying that you in yourself have the capacity and the resources to atone for your own sin. And you don't. And no amount of prayer, no amount of putting yourself in time out, no amount of doing more stuff can atone for sin. You can do absolutely nothing to earn your way back into God's good graces. All you do is you go back to the cross and you trust in the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, not one who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin He's he's sympathetic. He understands. He gets it. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So don't run cringing and hiding from God when you sin. Run to Him. Run to Him. Repent. Say, Father, I've sinned and I'm so sorry. But Jesus has forgiven my sin, and on the basis of his blood, I am approaching you once again for mercy and for grace. So forgive me, and change me, and keep loving me for Jesus' sake. And what does he promise? That he will do it. And that leads me to the last way I'd I'd offer today that you can make full use of Jesus' atonement. And that has to do with our relationships within the body. See, we don't have to live in guilt anymore. And that means we can be actually open with our brothers and sisters about our struggles against sin, our struggles with sin. We can be honest with one another about our failures and seek help and seek counsel from one another. Of course, I'm not saying don't use discretion, but we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to hide anymore. When I've gone to brothers, trusted brothers, or to my wife, with the darkest recesses of my heart, I've found acceptance. I've found forgiveness. I've found love. Because they understand, and they've gotten it, that Jesus has well and truly put those sins away and helped me to see it also. We don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to keep our eyes lowered with one another. We're forgiven sinners living under God's grace. We need his help. And often what he's going to do to help us is he's going to use other believers as the means to give us this help. So that means dig in with one another. Share your life with your brothers and sisters. Growing grace and truth-filled relationships so we can help one another on to glory. Help one another Fight sin, because that sin isn't something that's going to make us seize up in condemnation. It can be worked through because of the Lord Jesus. So let us live in that kind of freedom under God's grace. Unbeliever, turn from your sin and place yourself under this grace. 
Let's be filled with praise to God for the gift of his son. We got a priest and a sacrifice for Christmas. And it's exactly what we needed. So let's pray. Father in heaven, boy, you know our need more than we know our own. And you calibrated this gift exactly to us. There's no particle of the sin of your people that hasn't been taken and paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself to us on the cross, offering a full pardon and payment for sin. Let us take it for ourselves and apply his sacrifice to our own souls today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.